All aboard for family fun at the Kentucky Railway Museum. Take a nostalgic trip aboard LNN's historic Lebanon branch. Special events throughout the year include train robberies, dine by rail, car show, and Christmas trains. Stroll through the museum. Exhibits include large HO model train layout, hand cars, steam whistles, and much more. For more information, hop aboard our website at kyrail.org or call 800-272-0152. The Kentucky Railway Museum. Yay! I know, that's what I'm saying. Like, the postman only rang once. What? What? Oh, oh, hey, we're on. Oh, hello, everybody. <laughs> My name is Mick Sullivan, and welcome to the past and the curious. This is episode number 46, and we've done an episode about mail, we've done an episode about trains, and we're kind of talking about both of those things again, but it's two completely new stories. One of the stories you're going to hear is about Oni, the dog. And I need to thank friend of the show, Michael Fleming, for his great reading on that one. The other story you're going to hear is about a woman who was generally known as Stagecoach Mary, or at least that's how the history books remember her. But her real name was Mary Fields, and she was a very interesting person. Helping us with that episode, doing a bit of dialogue, is my friend Melly Victor from, well, she's the creator of Stoop Kid Stories, which is an awesome podcast, a part of Kids Listen. Highly recommend you check it out. Be sure to stick around for some songs at the end and some Patreon shoutouts and a little bit of fun hiding out there. Promise. Let's get started. Robbers didn't scare Mary Fields. Wolves didn't scare her either. She had held her own against many. Even deathly cold weather was of little concern to her. Actually, for that, she had developed a little trick to stay warm and not freeze during these particularly perilous nights. To keep her blood pumping and her temperature up, Mary would pace around her wagon all night long to keep from falling asleep. She figured if she did fall asleep in the cold, she might not wake up. A night without any sleep was definitely better than a morning that never comes. As you can see, Mary took her job seriously. She had made an oath to the United States Postal Service and had become the very first black woman to have a postal contract and a carrying route. With her wagon and team of horses, she was responsible for hauling mail and freight through remote areas of Montana, meeting the train in Cascade, and navigating to St. Peter's Mission. This is how she earned her nickname, Stagecoach Mary. The fact is, she didn't take that horse-drawn wagon to get mail and freight until she was well into adulthood. For most of her life, she wasn't Stagecoach Mary at all, but instead, Mary Fields. She had been born on a plantation in Tennessee around 1832, was never too sure about when her birthday was. Like the rest of her family, Mary had been enslaved. Forced hard labor in the fields was the fate of many enslaved men and women at this plantation, and Mary grew up to be a powerful young woman who worked beside the powerful men. She was tall, over six feet by most accounts, and she had a broad, incredibly strong body. Now, 1865 brought an enforceable end to enslavement in the United States, and while many emancipated men and women stayed near their families and friends, Mary immediately left Tennessee in search of work. She first found it on the river. During poker games and bull sessions later in her life, she liked to tell the story of her job on a riverboat. 
The Robert E. Lee was a steamboat named after the Confederate general on which Mary worked. In 1870, there was a famous steamboat race down the Mississippi River from St. Louis to New Orleans between her boat and another steamer called the Natchez. Nearly everything moved at a slower pace in the 1800s, so it might be hard for us to understand the excitement of a race traveling at an average of 14 miles an hour and stretched out over several days. It wasn't as slow as molasses, but it wasn't far off. Nonetheless, Americans paid attention. The plodding pace of the race lent itself to the technology of the day. As the steamboats paddled and pushed their way down the river, small towns would telegraph the time each boat passed by to newspapers for print in several daily editions. As exciting as it might have been to track the progress in the morning and evening editions of the newspaper, it was certainly more exciting to be in Mary's shoes, which were on deck, or at sometimes below deck, by the boiler of the league. She recalled the crew feeding the boilers with anything that would burn to keep the steam turning the paddle wheel. If they ran out of wood for the fires, they'd stoke it with other things, broken up furniture, old clothes, even somebody's dinner, whatever it took to win the race. She said to that end, they actually threw a whole side of bacon in the fire. That greasy smoke may have been the key. The Lee won the three-day race by six hours. Not long after this, through the connection of a passenger, Mary went north for a different, even slower-paced work. She arrived in Toledo, Ohio for the job. At the Ursuline Convent of the Sacred Heart, she served as groundskeeper, gardener, and handled any other jobs for the community of nuns who lived there. In exchange, the nuns gave her a room, board, and a paycheck. Mary definitely stuck out amongst the backdrop of solemnly religious ladies sharing the space. Nothing about the holy environment could stop Mary from yelling at them or anyone else who messed up her meticulously kept landscaping. For many, it was a tense relationship. Mary had a foul mouth, she smoked cigars, she dressed in men's trousers, and she spent her free time playing the banjo and harmonica. Most of all, she was not afraid in the least of a little conflict. Despite her unapologetically loud nature, Mary found a dear friend in Sister Amadeus, one of the nuns who lived there. By all accounts, Sister Amadeus was fiercely smart and overflowing with charisma. So you can see why they hit it off. It was a deep and important relationship to both of the women. But after a few years, the Ursulines decided to open a mission all the way out in Montana. The new branch would be far from the cities of the east, and they would staff it with the nuns who were willing to relocate. The goal was to educate children, not just those of the settlers in the area, but also the Native American children who lived nearby, including the Blackfoot, Crow, and Cheyenne. Sister Amadeus accepted the job 1,600 miles away, but because of her charisma and smarts, she was named Mother Superior, or the head of St. Peter's Mission. It would be tough to be separated, but Mary decided to stay in Toledo. She bid a fond farewell to her beloved friend, and then probably turned around and yelled curse words at someone for leaving a footprint on her freshly mowed grass. She carried on, but it just wasn't the same without Sister Amadeus. Months passed when Mary got the alarming news that her friend, Sister Amadeus, had fallen ill. 
The sickness seemed extreme, likely brought on by the cold winters of Montana. Mary couldn't bear to hear the news about her friend, so she dropped everything, left her beautiful garden and landscaping to someone who probably couldn't keep it anywhere near as perfect as she could, and she made the 1,600-mile journey to nurse her friend back to health. Such is the power of love, because Sister Amadeus slowly recovered with Mary's care and was eventually able to resume her duties as Mother Superior. Mary thought Montana was a fine place to live and decided to stay, since the mission was able to offer her work. Over a period of years, the nuns moved from their initial simple log cabins to beautiful stone buildings, which Mary helped to construct. Occasionally, she'd get into an argument with a man working on the construction project alongside her, and it was usually about money. And it usually ended with Mary's fist in his face. The nuns looked the other way for a while. Mary was never afraid of a fight, and it seems like she never lost one. But when one of those arguments escalated from fists to pistols, the Ursuline mission decided Mary had crossed the line, and they asked Sister Amadeus to relieve her of her duties. With sadness, she fired Mary, but it was not the end of their friendship. She helped Mary get set up in Cascade, Montana, where she opened a restaurant. While Mary could be rough around the edges, she had a big heart. According to most sources, her restaurant failed because she gave away too much food to people who could not pay for it. But on the heels of closing the restaurant, she got her big break. At least as far as the history books are concerned, the United States Postal Service was going to award a contract for someone to operate a mail route from Cascade to her old home of St. Peter's Mission. That person would carry mail and freight from the railroad to the mission and back. It was a trip just under 20 miles long that would wind through the mountains and outlying terrain, which was teeming with wild creatures. Mary, now 60 years old, thought she was perfect for the job. She wasn't afraid of anything, and she was as tough as any woman or man you'd ever meet. She could handle a team of horses like a musher handles dogs, and the job would allow her to regularly see her friends at St. Peter's Mission again. Part of the interview for the job included seeing how quickly she could harness a team of horses. And for Mary... <clears throat> I'm done. Done? But I'm still telling them about how to get the job. Yeah, I had to get the horses ready as fast as I could. You started a timer, right? Because they're ready. Uh, no, I no, I didn't start a timer. I mean, who, who do you think I am? I'm just the narrator. What's happening? I'll tell you what's happening. I'll start the job tomorrow. Oh, okay, Mary. Yeah, um... Tomorrow sounds great. Welcome to the post office. And that's more or less. Emphasis on less. How Mary got the job. Until the age of 71, Mary Field sat atop a stagecoach. Hence the nickname. Yeah, right. Handling her horses and whatever else Mother Nature could throw at her. She walked off the cold nights, fended off the wild wolves, and still managed to peeve off the occasional opponent in a card game. She was the second woman and the first black woman to have a mail route in the United States. It was a point of pride to her that she was never late and never missed a delivery. When stagecoach Mary retired from the mail route, she opened a laundry business in her home and even took care of neighborhood children as a babysitter. People who remember these times recalled her gladly sharing the flowers in her precious garden with these kids. One of my favorite legends about her is how it is said the whole town celebrated her birthday as a sort of holiday. But remember, she didn't know the actual date of her birthday, so she typically celebrated it twice a year, because why not? 
when she died in 1914, the town of Cascade held an enormously large funeral parade in her honor. Since then, she's been featured in movies, books, and songs, but perhaps her coolest honor is a minor planet, actually a very large asteroid, which was discovered in 1992 and named in her honor. It is known as 7091 Mary Fields. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. All right, it's time for You Have 30 Seconds, and this month it's Riley Jones telling the story of Cherami, which is a story that we also told in maybe our third episode, but it's great because it actually relates to the story that you're going to hear in a few minutes. So, Riley, it's time to do your thing. Hi, I'm Riley Jones, and I'll be talking about one of the world's most famous pigeons, Shirami. Shirami was a homing pigeon used in World War I. In one battle, American troops thought they were fighting Germans, but it was actually in other Americans. The division that was being shot at sent Shirami, or dear friend, in French, with the message. While flying, Shirami's legs got shot off, but he still delivered his message, and the shooting stopped. Shirami died in June 1919 and can be found in the Smithsonian. Yes, I love that story. What a bird. Riley, thank you so much for your contribution. And if you, you, you out there have a subject for a You Have 30 Second segment, well, record it. Send it to us. The instructions are on our website. Cha 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 cha. I wonder what's next. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Yes, it's quiz time again, and these questions are about deliveries. In 1958, one of the most expensive objects ever given to the Smithsonian was sent to the museum by United States Postal Service. What object was it? The Hope Diamond is valued today at over $250 million. And in 1958, when New York jeweler Harry Winston donated it, he sent it first-class USPS. The postage cost him 
and 44 cents. And he spent an extra 143 for insurance. James Todd was the letter carrier who delivered it, and he said he felt a little shaky about delivering the mail that day. Question number two. Can you guess what year it became legally required that every American household have a mailbox? Originally, a postal carrier had to hand the mail directly to the recipient in person. But by the 1860s, delivery to homes was standard. Many had mailboxes, but it was very common to leave mail at the doorstep. In 1923, it was mandated that every home must have a mail slot or mailbox. Your third and final question. It is 2020. How much does it cost to send a letter within the United States? You're going to need a stamp that costs 55 cents. It's kind of amazing. For 55 cents, you can buy a stamp, put it on an envelope, drop it in a mailbox, and it will show up at someone's doorstep anywhere in the United States within days. How awesome is that? I suggest you mail something to someone this week. You could say that the late 1800s saw the birth of the celebrity. Sure, people had been famous before. Many gained fame for writing books like Mary Shelley, robbing banks like Jesse James, or composing and performing music like Franz Liszt. But around the turn of the century, people began to excitedly follow celebrity movements and appearances in the papers like never before. Add to that the increasingly common power of the photograph, and the potential for celebrity grows like a whisker on a puppy's nose. Also around this time, many people became celebrities for being the first to succeed at never-before-possible feats. Traveling across a continent with great speed, or even traveling around the globe, for example. We've told tales on this podcast of those events already. Think of Nellie Bly and her amazing trip that had people glued to their newspapers, and when you picture this sort of celebrity, what do you see in your mind? Parades? Awards? Newspaper articles, commemorative posters, and pictures? Well, that's what they got a lot of the time, and the subject of this story was no different. Well, he was a little different in one way. He was a dog. Earlier in the 19th century, there was another dog who was considered quite the traveler. Seaman was the large black Newfoundland dog that Meriwether Lewis brought along with the Corps of Discovery for the cross-continent journey. Seaman was the envy of all who met him. He was strong and brave, smart and skilled. That beautiful canine outlived his owner, and it is said, when his own time finally came, he was wearing a collar that read, The Greatest Traveler of My Species. That may well have been, but a dog named Oni would eventually snatch that title from him like a favorite chew toy. It should be pointed out that Oni was significantly lazier than Seaman. See, while Seaman made most of his travels on foot, Oni made most of his lying down. Oni enters the history books around 1888, 80 or so years after Lewis and Clark and their dog returned from their journey. The American continent was now crisscrossed daily by train cars on train tracks carrying everything from people to pork to post. 
which is another way to say male. It turns out that mail, or at least the grimy, smelly, dirty bags the mail was carried in, were Oni's favorite things. The pup was a scruffy, scrappy little mutt who belonged to a postal clerk at the Albany, New York post office. If you had been one of the thousands, maybe even millions of people who eventually saw him, you probably wouldn't have guessed that he was anything special. The terrier mix looked like thousands of other little dogs across the country, a country which had a pretty serious problem at the time with stray dogs roaming the streets and neighborhoods. Oni could have easily been one of these strays, and in a way, he was. But through his own peculiar magic, he became everyone's dog. Each morning as his postal clerk owner walked to work, Oni would scamper along beneath his feet, eager for a hard day's rest. His owner would see no rest at all. The job of a railway postal clerk was very difficult. It was required that workers memorize thousands of locations and addresses so that they could quickly and accurately sort the mail deliveries from passing mail trains. These clerks would unload incoming mail from trains, throw bags of outgoing mail on the correct cars, and the biggest detail of their job? They had to accurately sort as many as 600 pieces of mail each hour. So, while Oni's owner was laser-focused on the tasks at hand, the scruffy pup would find one of the many mailbags at the office, the smellier the better, plop down and take a nap. If you've never napped on a filthy mail sack in a busy mailroom, you have no idea what you're missing. It was delightful, and the whirl of activity surrounding the dog never rankled the fur of the beast in the least. Sometimes, whichever filthy mailbag he was sprawled upon would need to be loaded on an outgoing train. When this happened, a clerk would rouse the pup from his slumbers, and he'd meander around to find another dirty, stinky bag, where he would stretch out until it was time to go home and sleep some more. It was a great life for a mutt. The love that Oni held for lounging on these cotton sacks was so great that when his owner decided to get another job somewhere else, he couldn't bear to break the dog from his beloved begrimed bags. So he decided to leave him. The now ownerless Oni just kind of stayed at the Albany post office. Trains came, trains went, mail was sorted, bags were thrown, and Oni slept. Other postal workers kept an eye on him. Not that that was hard given his lazy proclivities, but you know, they made sure he was fed. One fateful day, asleep on a bag that must have smelled with a super special stink, Oni was roused again from Doggy Dreamland. This happened many times before. It was a daily occurrence, really. But this time, he didn't simply move on to a new bag. We'll never know what made that bag so special to him, but we know that it was. The bag was thrown onto a mail car, and unbeknownst to anyone, Oni followed it on board. Before anyone realized what had happened, the train left the station. Rocking to the rhythm of the rails was Oni nestled up on his favorite bag. It was a ride he had not bargained for. All dude ever wanted was his bag back. The Albany staff must have wondered where their lazy little mascot had gone. That is, when they finally realized he was gone. 
As luck would have it, they were soon reunited with him in the next day or two when he popped out of a mail train returning from the other direction. The postal workers in the next town must have put him back on to send him home. And Oni must have liked it. Because before long, he was on a train as often as a flea is on a stray. Off he'd go to another city putting smiles on faces. And back he'd come bringing back smiles to the ones he had left. To ensure his return, the Albany workers made him a special caller instructing anyone who found him to send the mutt back to Albany on a returning train. He bopped into Boston, Baltimore, New York City, and beyond. Working aboard trains in the 1800s was a dangerous job. There were wrecks, derailments, fires, and more, all of which the workers had grown frightfully used to, but not once while riding the rails had one of Oni's trains experienced such terrible events, so the post office began to see him as a good luck charm. He chugged into Chicago and steamed into Springfield. It was a delight to see him, and not just because of the good luck, but because his reputation preceded him. People at each stop had heard about this funny little stinky, mail-sack-loving dog. The legend of Oni was born. At each new stop, someone from the city's office would give him a memento. Usually it was a stamped medallion like you'd find hanging from the neck of other dogs. Each new one of these would be marked with the location to show that Oni had passed through their office. They'd attach it to the Make Sure I Get Back to Albany collar around his neck. Of course, more and more destinations meant more and more medallions hanging from his neck. That collar got loud. You could hear him coming from the growing number of jingling souvenirs, but it also got pretty heavy. Imagine walking around with a necklace full of little metal weights. After a while, the poor fella could hardly stand up, or he might start to tip over from being so top-heavy. The postmaster general saw the problem, and personally made him a very special harness that covered his body with straps so that all these dangling metal markers could be a little more equally dispersed. He was still loud and jingly, but at least they weren't all around his neck. This way, he wouldn't tip over head first and bump his nose. As his celebrity grew among the post office, it grew in the public eye, too. People love a good dog story, and the papers would print stories of his life, most of which were not true at all. It's interesting to note that none of them ever really wrote about how cute he was. Quite the opposite, actually. They seemed to amplify his mangy, scruffy qualities, which might have made him more endearing anyway. Here's a sample of a newspaper article from Maysville, Kentucky, where upon arriving at the station on the way to Cincinnati, the dog was treated to breakfast with local politicians and dignitaries. Oni is an overgrown, shaggy, Scotch-Irish terrier. He is known by personal acquaintanceship to hundreds of postal clerks throughout the country, and by reputation to them all. He is constantly on the go from one portion of the country to another, and he has no predilection towards any particular portion of the nation. Climactic advantages never bother him. The effet east, the burly west, the languid south, and the energetic north are all the same to his dogship. Wherever the leather pouch and canvas sack are found, there Oni is very much at home, and he always feels secure when these form his resting place. If he earned his fame traveling across the continent, he became a legend for his biggest accomplishment. The city of Tacoma, Washington decided to sponsor him on a trip around the world. 
In 1895, Oni conquered the seas as well as the rails when he boarded a steamship called the Victoria and spent the next 129 days circumnavigating the globe. By the time he docked back in New York City, he was world famous, and his already heavy and jingly vest of souvenirs was much heavier and jinglier and sported the names of cities throughout Asia and Europe. Quite certainly, he was the most famous dog in the world, a canine celebrity without question, and he did it all while snuggled up to stinky mailbags. Oni's end was not as dignified as Seaman's, and, to be honest, it is quite sad. For a number of reasons, we'll just leave it at that. But, on the bright side, the postal workers who loved him so much acted quickly and preserved his mortal remains. Today, his body is on display at the Smithsonian Postal Museum. Until a few years ago, he was looking pretty rough, though. Luckily, a professional taxidermist recently gave him a makeover. During that time, a substitute stuffed dog was displayed in his place, and it was jokingly named Phony Oni. Well, that's episode 46, and it took me 46 episodes to make the mistake that I knew I would eventually make. I recorded a song that I thought was perfect for the show, and then realized that I had already done it. I had done it in January of 2019. Uh, the version that I made, though, when I listened back to it from, the, from January of 2019, I sounded like I was asleep. Which makes sense because I had a one-month-old baby, so I probably was asleep. So, I, I have a new version of a song called Bringing in the Georgia Mail. I'm going to tag that on at the end. I think it sounds good, so I recommend you listen to it. But first, I have some thanks and Patreon sponsors to thank, including a Patreon song that I think is really good. First, a shout-out to Simon in Philadelphia, which is a great place. I love visiting Philadelphia. How cool it must be to live there. Thanks for the note you sent about making hardtack. That definitely made my day. Uh, I also have to shout out someone. Uh, Annie, you are going to put me out of a job with your show. Uh, History Says So is a podcast that Annie Sternberg is making. Uh, and holy cow, it's really good. I love it, Annie. Congrats. Keep it up. I cannot wait to see what you do. Anyone looking for a nice, fun history podcast? I highly recommend Annie's show. You go, girl. Okay, and I'm really excited. We've got a lot of new Patreon sponsors, and that means the world to me. Like, I didn't think that we'd have so many during this time period, for whatever reason, but it's gone great, so thank you. Leo and Greta, thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm so glad your ears are out there. Laurel, thank you for listening. I'm so glad your ears are out there. And Mikhail, or Mikhail? I think Mikhail. Uh, I think you're from England, too, so that's really awesome. Thanks for being over there and listening. Oh, and here's a good one. Jonas, thank you! Jonas in Connecticut! I have some family in Connecticut. Jonas, thank you! And Emily, Charlie, and Maggie! We've heard Emily on the show because she did the Florence Nightingale UF 30 Seconds. Emily, Charlie, and Maggie! Thank you very, very, very much. Thanks to you and all Patreon sponsors and all listeners in general, really. But if you would like to become a Patreon sponsor, you can find that information on our website, thepastandthecurious.com, as well as, well, you could just find us on patreon.com, I guess. And now, without further ado, here is a original song written for the Fowler fam. 
that would be Randall, Kate, and Milo. What's up, Milo? Thanks for listening. Here's your song. I hope you all enjoy. And I know you like T-Rexes, so I leaned into that, and I kind of made it cheesy. The other song that I redid, uh, Georgia Mail, that's coming up afterwards. So stick around and listen to that, too. I put some work into it. T-Rex, who doesn't love a T-Rex? T-Rex, Milo loves a T-Rex. Milo loves them cause they're awesome. T-Rex, who doesn't love a T-Rex? Books and sports, who doesn't love books and sports? Books and sports, not everybody loves books and sports. You don't have to like sports, but you should like books, books and sports. Randall loves books and sports. The Gilded Not everybody likes the Gilded Age Gilded Age Kate likes the Gilded Age We should thank Mark Twain For the name He made the Gilded Age He made the name up Gilded Age He didn't make up T-Rex Everybody likes the T-Rex T-Rex, Milo really likes a T, a T, a T, T, T. Thanks, guys. Here's bringing in the Georgia Mail. I'm Mick Sullivan, and this has been The Past on the Curious. See that engine puffin', boy, she's making time. That old train is wearing out the rail, rail, rail. Heading for the mountain that she's got to climb. Bringing in the Georgia mail. 90 miles an hour, and she's gaining speed. Listen to that whistle moaning, wail, wail, wail. Has she got the power? I say yes, indeed. Bringing in the Georgia mail. See the drivers travel, watch her spin the jack. Y'all to put that engineer in jail, jail, jail. Has he got a rolling? Watch her ball the jack. Bring it in the Georgia mail. Rocking and reeling, spouting off that steam. Stoke the fire and hope the brakes don't fail, fail, fail. Serving all the people, listen to her scream. Bring it in the Georgia Bay.